Well, good afternoon. It is uh, great to see you all. Um, I'm in the early stages of training for a half marathon in April. I have to start early because I'm so old. Um, all the young ones start after Christmas. I have to start now. And uh, this morning I did a 10K run for the first time, uh, just building up the distance. So I'm really hoping my legs will hold out to stand up at the front and uh, share some thoughts with you. Hopefully uh, they will. Uh, my step count today is excellent. So, and um, I, I've never really uh, thought about preaching from a step count point of view. I'm sure as I'm kind of hopping from one leg to another, that counts as steps, doesn't it? So maybe I'll get another 2,000 in while I'm preaching now, who knows. Um, last week, uh, we began uh, a short Christmas series entitled The Promised King. And um, if you were here last week, we were looking at the very strange beginning that Matthew makes to his gospel with what looks like a very boring, long list of names. It seems like a really dull way to begin any book. And yet, uh, I hope last week we saw that it is one of the most incredibly exciting passages uh, in the Bible. Last week we were thinking about the promised king, his credentials. And we were thinking about three things that come from this genealogy. First of all, the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of every single good promise that God has ever made to us and to this world. Secondly, his, the birth of Jesus also marks a completely new beginning because he comes to put right everything that is broken in this world and also in our lives, if we'll allow him to. And then thirdly, this genealogy, uh, we saw that Jesus was born into a family that was broken and dysfunctional and that should encourage us hugely that he's not ashamed of us Jesus is not afraid to come and get involved in the messiness of our own lives but in this genealogy uh, I want to begin today by just pointing you to verse uh, 16 um, we, Gwyneth read to us the section afterwards but in this genealogy, there's a pattern. And all the way through, the pattern's the same. There's, there's some additional comments, but the basic pattern is so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. It was the father of so-and-so. It was the father of so-and-so. It was the father of so-and-so. And it goes on like that for generations until you get to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, what you expect to see there is the father of Jesus. But what, what, you, what Matthew says is Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. There's a pattern there for how many verses? 15 verses. And in verse 16, I think the idea is that we're meant to prick our ears up. It seems like Mary is his mum. But Joseph isn't his dad. And it raises all sorts of questions, and I think Matthew does that very deliberately. Um, first, I mean, three, three reasons why it might raise questions straight away. First of all, is there some kind of doubt about the purity of this young couple? Was Jesus an illegitimate child? Did Mary sleep with some other guy, and they just pretended that Joseph was the dad? This idea might not be as strange as it sounds, in a sense. It seems to have followed Jesus throughout his whole life. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is debating his credentials with the Jewish religious leaders. And he tells them that his father has sent him. And they ask him, where is your father? Where's your dad? And later on, as Jesus challenges them, they, they get angry and seem to shout at Jesus, we're not illegitimate children. And you get a little hint that they're implying, like you are, mate, don't come lecturing us. We're not illegitimate children. It's like the rumours had followed Jesus all the way down the years. 
Ironically, they say, the only father we have is God. What an irony, as I hope we'll appreciate this afternoon. Later still, in the same passage in John chapter 8, they, they say to Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan? Which is the greatest insult they could think of. What they're suggesting is, we don't know who your dad is, you probably don't know who your dad is, maybe you're a half-blood Jew. And what does that say about your mum and the choices she's made in life? They're, they're, I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we, we fail to recognise the level of provocative insults that are being traded. Is there some kind of doubt here about the purity, sexual purity of this young couple, Mary and Joseph? Secondly, does this just make Joseph look a little bit weak and pathetic? The the way Matthew writes this, so-and-so is a father and so-and-so, and then you get to Joseph and he He's, he's just the husband of the woman who had the child. He, he's kind of the silent partner. If some adultery has taken place, it makes him look like the silent victim of his fiance being unfaithful. Thirdly, and I, I want to really emphasize this, it seems to defeat the very point that Matthew is trying to make. If you were here last week, we were thinking about Jesus' credentials. Verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The whole point of this genealogy is to show that Jesus descended from King David. Then you get to his dad, who's not his dad. It's like Matthew's trying to make this massive point, and then we get to verse 16, and he breaks the link. When it gets to the crunch, Matthew somehow introduces the idea that there's a problem which surely would make Jesus fail to fulfill the very criteria that Matthew's trying to tell us that he does. Do you get that? I, I, I think it does beg the question, and people come to this passage with all kinds of critical comments, it does beg the question that if Matthew is trying here to make stuff up, to make Jesus look something that he isn't, Isn't he going all the way around the houses to do it? He seems to deliberately create problems which he surely doesn't need to unless this has a basis in actual reality. This section is really crucial because the little intriguing hint that Matthew introduces in verse 16 is really what Matthew is trying to answer from verse 18. He starts by saying, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. He's already introduced the idea that something strange is going on. And now he's going to explain to us why this strangeness is going on? Why does that pattern get broken? Why does he make it look like it's different? In the NIV here in our church Bibles, this little section is entitled The Birth of Jesus Christ. That little heading isn't part of the original Bible. That's a helpful little divider that people who translate the Bible put there. But there are no details given here of the birth really at all I, have, you, have you received Christmas cards yet this year we, we got quite a few in November it's amazing isn't it to get Christmas cards in November I, I don't think I've ever seen a Christmas card based on this passage this is not the passage that you would read sat around the fire on Christmas Eve well, well you might for other reasons but not because it's a Christmassy scene there's no shepherds there's no manger There's no trip to Bethlehem. There's no inn. There's no swaddling baby clothes, whatever they are. I had to look up that word to say how to spell it. Swaddling. What a great word that is. Wrapped in swaddling clothes. There's nothing here that you could put as a picture on a nice Christmas card to look nice. No. 
what Matthew is doing here is answering his own questions. Mary has not been sleeping around. Joseph is not some kind of silent joke bloke. And Jesus is not the bastard child of a confused and promiscuous couple. These issues are important. This is hugely important. This couple are not impure or unfaithful to one another. They are very young, but they are godly and courageous. And Joseph is not a pathetic victim of a man. In fact, we'll see over the next few weeks that everything that needs to be done in the next two chapters is done by who? Joseph. Joseph gets up. Joseph gets on with it. Joseph goes here. Joseph leads his family. Joseph is not a victim in this. Matthew portrays the Christmas story from Joseph's point of view. And in a way, he's the main character. He is thoughtful and strong and decisive and practical and caring and compassionate. He is portrayed here as a proper bloke, not a joke bloke. God is with him. He is not a ditherer or a victim. And one of the main points here is that actually, by God's plan, Joseph does become the legal father of Jesus, even though his birth is a miracle. That is why Matthew makes so much here of the naming of the baby Jesus. We'll get to it, but in verse 20, an angel appears to Joseph. We'll, we'll get to I don't want to steal more thunder. We'll get to it. We'll get to it, I promise. Look at what the angel says. Joseph, son of David. That's the whole point. Joseph, in the line of David. Joseph, son of David. The, the hairs on the back of Joseph's neck must have stood up. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll, be, she'll give birth to a son. And you, you, Joseph, are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because naming implies ownership. There's a lovely verse in Isaiah chapter 43 where God says to his people, I have called you by name, you are mine. Joseph here, by God's plan, is legally adopting, if you like, the Lord Jesus into his new family. That's why this passage is so important and the section ends with that very phrase. There's no phrase here that's there by accident. The very section that we read ends with that very truth. And he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph, son of David. Sometimes when I'm preparing to teach from the Bible one of the first questions that I'm trying to ask is, what's the main point? And it's been really easy this week to work out what the main point is of this passage. The main point here that Matthew makes is that Jesus was born to Mary before she had ever had sexual relations with Joseph. That is his main point. That's why he writes verse 16 in the way he does. Because he can't say that Joseph is the father of Jesus. He can say that he's the husband of Mary to whom Jesus was born. That's why in this passage, the problem for Joseph of them being engaged and her being found to be pregnant is such an enormous issue. That's why it needs to be supernaturally confirmed to Joseph because this has never happened before and has never happened since in the history of people having babies. That's why it's confirmed through the scriptures. And that's why at the very end of verse 25, Matthew 
like with a big marker pen, underlines the same issue. But Joseph had no union with Mary until she gave birth to a son. Matthew, that's the main point, isn't it? (laughs) Matthew is trying to get across to us that Jesus was born to Mary before she had had any sexual relationship with Joseph. This is what, um, I suppose, in history has become known as the virgin birth. I suppose, (laughs) I mean, that's fair enough, isn't it, virgin birth? What we're really, this is about a virgin conception, though, isn't it, technically? Virgin conception, Mary becomes pregnant, miraculously. Well, we're going to do three things. Um, So I want just three headings. First of all, Joseph, I want to think about Joseph with you. The promised king, his identity. Joseph's massive problem. I mean, that's an obvious first heading, isn't it? Um, Second heading is God's supernatural confirmation. And then when we get to the end, I just want to think a little bit with you about the implications of why this idea of Jesus being born of a virgin is so important in Christianity. Is that okay? Well, that's what we're going to do. So... (laughs) And you're all here, so you must want to hear. Joseph's massive massive problem. Let's um, have a little dig in and try and flesh out the character of Joseph. I love Joseph. Let's, um, first of all, I want you to notice here in this passage that there is an assumption about and, and of purity. In, in these times that Mary and Joseph lived, it would be very different to how it is now. Um, and, and even when I say that, I'm talking about how it is now in terms of the classic sense of a couple courting and becoming engaged and then getting married. Even that doesn't seem to be the norm now. But in those days, there would be three stages in a relationship. First of all, there would be a kind of arrangement where two young people are promised to each other by their families. And, and often that might happen when the girl might only be 13 or 14 years old. So we're talking about a culture where, where arranged marriages would be the norm. And a bit later on, there would be a period of engagement when the couple become formally betrothed to each other, but they don't yet live together as man and wife. Now, we, when we talk about being engaged, you know, Kyle getting by a ring and might propose to his wife and they get engaged and then the wedding later. In these days, an engagement was a much stronger thing than we think of it in our own culture. A Jewish engagement could only be broken by a kind of divorce. So when a couple were betrothed, they, they were really married, but not yet living together as man and wife. There's kind of a phase there of betrothal before the marriage takes place. But it's a very serious bond, an unbreakable bond. And in the Old Testament, there's some very strong um, legal processes um, to deal with uh, people being unfaithful during this period of betrothal. And uh, and then the third stage, obviously, the marriage would take place, after which the couple would then live together as man and wife. So Matthew's narrative fits this Jewish process. Mary and Joseph have been pledged to be married, and and it seems that they are in this kind of betrothal uh, phase, but they're not yet living together as man and wife. And so Matthew's telling us that their relationship at this point is not a sexual one. They are betrothed, but they're not living together. Matthew spells it out. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. What is very striking is just that Matthew doesn't elaborate. He's not really making a teaching point in a way. But what is striking is the assumption, isn't it, of sexual purity. 
the idea here of commitment to one person, the waiting, the respect, the self-respect, the discipline, the faithfulness. And don't forget that these people here, Mary and Joseph, at this point are possibly very young, late teens, and in a culture that prized the wisdom and maturity of age, Joseph and Mary's purity makes them all the more striking. Here is a thoughtful, godly young couple who are self-disciplined and who are living a life of purity before God. Surely that speaks to our modern culture, doesn't it? Where I think the assumption is at the other end of the spectrum. Is it, would, you, would you agree with that? The assumption is one of impurity. There is almost an assumption in our modern culture that this kind of relationship is unattainable. Who lives like this? It's old-fashioned. It's from a different time. Any couple who live like this would be totally going against the whole grain of a culture that says, try before you buy. A culture that says, if it feels good, it must be right. I just want you to see how the Bible honors purity and how clean this young couple are here. And let me say to you, I want to say this with warmth and grace. This doesn't mean that sexual sins put us outside of God's grace somehow. We don't want to create an environment in our church or anywhere where people are shamed and made to feel like outsiders. So there's two challenges going on at the same time here, isn't there? We, 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 We want to uphold the goodness and rightness of sexual purity. And we also want to uphold the importance of compassion and kindness when we fail to live up to those ideals. Two two things uh, being done at the same time. Anyway, all of this really underlines why Mary's pregnancy is such a problem, doesn't it? It becomes clear that she, she was found to be with child. Matthew helps us with a little hint there that this is a miracle. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. One of my questions about this is whether Mary told Joseph what she knew. You ever wonder that? Luke's gospel very much gives us Mary's perspective on the Christmas story. Remember that Mary had been visited by an angel and she knew that she was going to conceive a child supernaturally. Just uh, keep your finger in Matthew and just look with me at Luke's gospel. I'll I'll read it to you. Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 28. The angel went to Mary and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So Mary hears this from the angel what does she do with that information? Does she go and find Joseph and tell him, you know, the guest that an angel appeared to me, I'm going to conceive a child. Does she tell Joseph? I mean, we, we don't really know. This has never happened before. 
I think in Matthew, when you read Matthew, it does seem like the natural sense of this is that Joseph didn't know. The, the way it reads is Mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And later on, the angel that speaks to Joseph in the dream seems to assume that Joseph doesn't know and has to explain to him the mechanism. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's almost like even at that point, he's still in the dark. Maybe Mary just thought, this is so incredible. God will have to work it all. If, if that is so, her faith is amazing, isn't it? But the focus here in Matthew is on Joseph. I just want to say a few quick things about Joseph. First of all, there's assumption of purity here, but Joseph feels betrayed. One writer says this, Joseph faced the pain of apparent betrayal in a world that considered adultery the ultimate theft. The stealing of another man's most precious possession, the undivided affection of his wife. This is a godly young couple that have prized purity before God. And one day Joseph finds out that his, what his fiance is expecting a child. I think, secondly, Joseph feels the prospect of shame. One of the issues here is the psychological implications for Joseph. My fiancé has had an affair and I feel ashamed. And I, I, I mean, you, you'll be ahead of me. There's two reasons this could be. The, first of all, people will think that somehow I'm not capable of being enough for her. Her choice of someone else makes me look inadequate. There's a shame in that. But secondly, people might also think that I have made a poor choice of partner. How could I have not seen this coming? How could I have fallen for this? How could I be such a poor judge? How could I make such a bad pick? And you can hear the whispers, the sense of shame that Joseph would have felt. And yet, I think also Joseph here feels torn. What, what do I mean by that? Joseph comes across here as a man who so wants to do the right thing. And yet he loves Mary. It, it really is beautiful. It, it, it is worth pointing out we alluded to it earlier, the punishment for unfaithfulness of this kind while engaged, if both parties were willing participants, was death. That, that didn't happen in the first century. Israel, by this point, is not a nation state occupied by the Romans. They have no power to execute anyone. But in the Old Testament, the penalty for this kind of adultery would have been death for both parties. was different if a woman was raped, of course, but there's no hint of that here in the passage. Mary doesn't claim that something has happened to her against her will. It seems that for Joseph, legally and culturally, their relationship is over. She has been unfaithful. To ignore that is to undermine everything that the scriptures stand for, that Judaism stands for, that the law stands for. I, I can't marry this girl without undermining everything that I believe. And yet Matthew says that he has compassion. Because Joseph, her husband, verse 19, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? 
He's so utterly... Here's a man who is torn between two things. He wants to uphold the good laws of God, but he also loves his fiancée, who seems to have messed up, and he's in anguish. If ever there were sleepless nights... Sometimes in life, there are people who seem to want to bring the full force of the law down on someone else's head. You, you come across people like that. And there's no compassion. It's hard, harsh. These are the rules. They've been broken. But they deserve everything that's coming. Other times, we so want to show compassion and love and kindness that we can easily ignore sometimes things that are right and wrong. Joseph here is caught between exactly that place, isn't he? How can justice be done and compassion be shown at the same time? Joseph seems to come, after agonizing, he seems to come to the conclusion that the best way forward will be for a quiet, private divorce. A couple of witnesses. He has no desire to drag Mary through the courts. Public humiliation. Even though he's heartbroken, he's no wish to hurt her. But even then, it's like he's hesitating and not actually following through on his plan. He had Verse 19 says, He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered, it's like he knows what he, he, he's come to a plan, but he can't quite bring himself to like, he's waiting, he's hesitating, he's in anguish, isn't he, the poor guy? You may be ahead of me here. Listen, I, I, I want to just show you here that Joseph, here, perhaps without realizing it, is a faint picture of God himself, isn't he? Because of our sins, God has a massive problem. How on earth can God, the creator, the judge, uphold justice? How on earth can God uphold his good, pure and right laws and at the same time love people who break them? If God loves people who sin and break laws, then his justice is compromised. But if he pursues justice to the nth degree, we're all doomed because we've broken his laws. God has, a, God has the same problem that Joseph has. How can God be true to himself to uphold the law and to love justice and yet to love lawbreakers? This is the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? This is why Jesus came. He lived a perfect life that upholds the law of God and he died the death that we lawbreakers deserve. God amazingly has found a way to uphold the law and to show compassion to those who break it. God has found a way to call sin exactly what it is and then to take it away. In the Old Testament it said, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your sins from you. Psalm 103. The cross is crucial. God loves God's good justice satisfied by his amazing love so that we can be his people. There's one final thing I want to say about Joseph. Are you still there? Yeah. Overwhelmed. I mean something different by this. I couldn't think of a good word. It sounds like torn, but I mean something different. He was torn between justice and compassion. But I just want to show you something else. He was overwhelmed. The thing that is really striking about Joseph in this passage 
is his thoughtfulness, isn't it? Righteous man, what am I going to do? What am I going to do, God? Why has this happened? I've had such a great future. I just don't understand. Over the page here, he had in mind to divorce her quietly after he had considered this. Joseph is a thinking man. He's not rash. What did he do? Go for a walk. Clear his head. Go into his room. Lock the door. Whatever he did, he is thinking. Where's God in all of this? Why is this happening to me? I so wanted to do the right thing. Mary wanted to do the right thing. And now everything, all of our dreams are shattered. It's all gone. I love Mary and she's betrayed me. I wonder whether in life sometimes we might feel something of those emotions. I wonder whether there are times in your life when you felt this kind of combination of inadequacy, confusion, heartbreak. You know what our culture would suggest, don't you? Facebook friends, they're great, aren't they? Facebook friends. You put it on Facebook, you never guess what Mary's done. And then there's 50 comments. Go and get smacked, mate. That's what you deserve. Go and get hammered. Forget all about it. Facebook friends are great, aren't they? It's not worth, no one's worth bothering that much with. I'll tell you what, going out and getting hammered, says Joseph. It says no one cares. It says I've got nothing left. It says there's no point. It says I've got no hope anymore. It says God is useless and means nothing to me. That's what going out and getting hammered says, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. We know the story. We feel Joseph's pain. We sense his confusion and heartbreak. But let me ask you this one question. Has God abandoned him? Is God absent? Why is it so hard then? Why the tears? How could God let this happen to a godly young couple? Does God not know how much my heart is breaking? The sleepless nights, the anguish. When difficulties come into our lives, the most crucial thing is what is going on in the secret places inside our own hearts, isn't it? And Joseph here, he is a thoughtful, diligent man. He has no clue what is happening around him. His heart is almost bursting. And it is at that point that God steps in and intervenes. Just imagine if he listened to his Facebook friends and gone out and got smashed. It's too late then. And then he realises what has really happened. Oh man. Uh, somehow I want to communicate something here of how utterly crucial it is for us as Christian believers to take everything, everything to his throne of grace. Sometimes we don't know. But one thing we do know is that he will never leave you. He will never abandon you. And even when we're screaming, why is this happening to me? He's still there. A few hundred years ago, John Calvin, commenting on this passage, said this, we see here how seasonably, and as we would say at the very point, 
the Lord usually aids his people. And we infer that when he appears not to observe our cares and distresses, we are still under his eye. He may indeed hide himself and remain silent. But when our patience has been subjected to the trial, he will aid us at the time which his own wisdom has selected. How slow or late his assistance may be thought to be, it is for our advantage that it is delayed. When he is at the very end of his tether, God meets him. In fact, God had never left him. And he had never left God. Well, so much for Joseph. Joseph, massive problem. God's supernatural confirmation. In verse 20, Joseph discovers that all of his reflections have been based on slightly inadequate information, doesn't he? He has not had all the facts at his disposal. It seems that Mary hasn't told him. But Joseph then, as he sleeps, um, an angel in fact the confirmation comes in two ways I just want to split these up first of all angelic confirmation and then scriptural confirmation we'll come to that in a minute angelic confirmation in the original uh, language I, I don't know why the NRV does this but there's an extra word in the original and it's, it's the word that we often translate in the old version of the Bible behold you get it like in the King James and behold it's a little Greek word and it's there in verse 20 and it's, and that, that word in the original Greek I mean it sounds archaic to us the word behold and behold what, what it really means in the Greek is you'll never guess what happened next <laughs> that's really what Matthew's writing if we could have a way of saying that in English you will never guess what happens next guys that's what Matthew's saying there's excitement in that word there's vibrancy in that word The idea of dreams being used by God is one that we perhaps struggle with in our Western culture. Certainly this kind of revelation occurred a lot in the Old Testament. And Matthew, as a Jewish man, is quite interesting, writing a gospel. There are six separate instances of people being guided by dreams in the gospel of Matthew that don't appear in any other New Testament book. Five of them are in the first two chapters, and the sixth one is the wife of Pilate. Remember the story of Pilate's wife coming to him and said, I had a dream, this man's innocent. The Magi were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, and there are four separate occasions where Joseph receives direct guidance from God by means of dreams. And it's interesting, we already touched on it, didn't we, that this angel in this dream addresses Joseph as the son of David. What an amazing thing that is for Joseph to hear. So, the angel, this is a supernatural revelation, isn't it? And, and maybe Joseph needed nothing less than this. I mean, his wife's expecting a child. He's, his heart's breaking. He needs to know this is a very unique situation. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you, Joseph, are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Secondly, by God's grace, there's a scriptural confirmation. Matthew, some commentators think that the angel said this. Um, so there's some debate about that. Because there were no quotation marks in the original possible the angel added this but it, it does seem that Matthew's adding this as a footnote all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet 
the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us I wish we had more time to explore this more properly sometimes critics of the Bible say that Matthew is making all this up he's found something in the Old Testament and then he's tried to fabricate circumstances to match to, to make it look like it's a fulfilment the problem with that is that nobody thought that this particular passage in Isaiah chapter 7 was a messianic one. Nobody saw it coming. And do you, do you know sometimes, I, I'm struggling to like put this into words in a way, you know sometimes when someone, someone does something but you don't know they've been doing it and then there's, it surprises you and you suddenly find out, wow, the, the whole preparation that's gone into that. And when you know what has happened, it all becomes, oh, so that's what that meant, and that's what that meant, that's what that meant. This is really what's going on here. The, the facts emerge, and then it becomes clear to these first believers. I think Jesus taught them this later. You remember the two on the Emmaus Road, and the stranger appears to them, and he opened all the scriptures to them, and it says, did not our hearts burn within us? He began to explain all the scriptures that pointed to him. Maybe Jesus himself told the disciples this after resurrection but they're beginning to see wow so that's why Jesus did that it's right there in the Old Testament we never even saw it this is what you would call a scriptural confirmation God has so arranged the beauty of the Old Testament that you only realise that it's being fulfilled afterwards you see what happens with Jesus and then you go back to the Old Testament and see that God has left signs embedded in the whole narrative. People are getting cold. I've just grabbed that from the audio. Matthew is coming to realise that the whole Christmas story is embedded in the Old Testament 600 years before Christ and that those things were partially fulfilled then, but only after Christ comes did they fully appreciate the significance. Nobody can make that up, can they? Matthew has a very high view of prophecy. He realises in verse 22 that it was the Lord that has been at work. It's just a little throwaway phrase. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is God speaking so we haven't got time really but in this time this is Isaiah chapter 7 in, the t in this time when Isaiah was speaking Israel was in big trouble a king called Ahaz was on the throne and lo and behold where does he appear in verse 9 of chapter 1 he's in the very genealogy on the previous page King Ahaz was a bit of a coward there was a massive threat from Assyria in the north massive country sweeping all before them, very brutal. And between Judah and this big bully in the north of Syria were two smaller countries. And they came knocking on Judah's door and said to King Ahaz, we should join forces, mate. Three of us are better than one of us. I mean, the Assyrians are massive, but at least we'll stand a better chance if we combine forces. And Ahaz, as a believer in God, knows that really what he ought to do is trust in God. And he kind of, you get the sense that he gives that answer. But then these two little countries say, we're going to come and bomb you, mate, because you won't join our team. And so they do. And in Isaiah chapter 7, it talks about the house of David, Ahaz. Absolutely, it says they were shaken to the core, terrified. Not only a big bully, but two little bullies in front of them were, were doomed. And God tells Isaiah to go to Ahaz and tell him not to worry. God is with you, Ahaz. You are my precious people. And Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask the Lord for a sign. And Ahaz replies to God's prophet, no. I'm not asking God for a sign. And Isaiah goes absolutely ballistic. How very dare you? 
God has sent me to come and encourage you and to tell you to ask for a sign and you shake your fist, your puny little fist in God's face and say, no. I'll tell you what's going to happen next. <laughs> and Isaiah proceeds to give him both barrels. The Lord himself will give you a sign, mate. I'll tell you, that's what's going to happen. A baby is going to be born and before that baby has grown up enough to know right from wrong, these two puny little bullies are going to be flattened and smashed and then the door will be wide open for Assyria to come and smack your face in the midst. That's, that's basically how the narrative goes. God said, don't be afraid, trust in me. Ahaz goes, no, I'm not going to trust in God. And he gets both barrels. The sign was one of judgment. This child was a sign that by the time it grew up, Israel, well certainly the two nations above, would be annihilated and that would open the way in the future for Assyria to come and flatten Judah. All of that comes in Isaiah chapter 7. But in the middle of all these predictions of Isaiah, of doom and failure and darkness covering the land, by chapter 9, Isaiah gets caught up with another child being born. This one, amazingly, brings light into that darkness. We were singing that earlier. And Isaiah even mentions in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 that this would happen where? In Galilee. Galilee! 600 years before Christ lived there. And then you get down to verse 6 of chapter 9. And you're ahead of me because you'll see this on like every other Christmas card. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. This King David keeps cropping up all over the place, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. It's like Isaiah, Isaiah has like glasses and a telescope. He sees a partial fulfillment that is plagued with doom and judgment and then he gets his telescope out and shines it down the next 600 years of history and sees another child who's going to bring light in the darkness. And when the angel comes to Joseph, this is why the genealogy that we looked at last week is so important. Jesus, son of David, Joseph, son of David, all of this stuff is being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. And listen, what God is actually saying here is that despite the house of David spectacularly failing to trust God, King Ahaz, he's on the previous page, that God would never mess up or fail to fulfill his promise to put the right king on the house of David's throne. That, friends, is the message of Christianity, isn't it? We mess up, God never messes up. We are faithless often, but he is faithful. Ours is the sin, his is the triumphant grace. We fail, God fixes. Isn't it amazing that all of this human dysfunctionality doesn't stop Christ coming into the world God's grace is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus oh man let's, uh, let's just very quickly finish off implications here of the virgin birth okay we won't, we won't go on first of all the virgin birth marks Jesus out as a unique person, surely. Jesus has a real human mum, but no human dad. In fact, every other person or king in this genealogy in chapter 1 fails in some way. And the break in that cycle 
is because Mary can see through the power of the Holy Spirit the eternal Son of God who existed way before he was born in Bethlehem was implanted somehow in Mary's womb by the creative power of the Spirit of God. God's solution to human problems does not come from human potential. It doesn't come from human procreation. God's solution always comes from the creative power of the Spirit of God. One writer says this, Human genealogical possibilities have been completed and exhausted. And now God steps in. This divine intervention marks a new beginning. And while there is continuity with the past, there is also an unmistakable discontinuity. The reason the virgin birth is so important is because it means that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human at the same time. Jesus has a kind of dual paternity. Can we call it that? Dual paternity. His father was, was God. His mother was Mary. Never before or since in history such a miracle occurred. That means that Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. He wasn't born to be a religious leader. He isn't a teacher who points us to God. He is God with a human skin on him. But I want you to see something else as well that we don't often touch on. Jesus is also the ultimate revelation of true humanness, isn't he? Listen to this. The incarnation, that's the posh theological word for God becoming man. The incarnation is God's greatest affirmation of humanness. In the incarnation, God demonstrated that he could become human without becoming sinful. Humanness and sinfulness are not synonymous. Sinfulness is the perversion of what is truly human, the perversion of the image of God in which we created, and salvation, therefore, is, amongst other things, the restoration of the truly human in our own lives. The correction of perversion so that we, too, may be people who express again the image of God. I love that. Being human isn't synonymous with being sinful. It is for us. But Christ, God becoming human it dignifies humanity. He shows what humanity should have been and can be. He shows us what God is like. He shows us what humanity should be like. Jesus is utterly unique. And he has a unique mission. The angel here gives a surprising line to Joseph. Mary's going to give birth to a son. He's given the name Jesus because... He will save his people from their sins. Are you expecting that? The new and eternal King David, his job wasn't ever to smash the Romans. His job was to come and save people like us from our sins. Matthew links that later to the cross. When Jesus gives the bread and the wine to his disciples and he he says, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. In the Old Testament, there's a psalm, Psalm 130. It's one of my favorite psalms. And the last verse says, he, he will save his people from their sins. I think the angel is quoting from a psalm. Imagine that, an angel quoting from a psalm. I'll tell you something else as well. I never knew this until this week. When you go to Luke's gospel, when the angels appear to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. Do you know the only beings that speak of salvation in the Christmas story are angels? Right here, 
He will save his people from their sins to the shepherd. Saviors will be born to you. It's like the angels are in heaven going, whoa, look at what God's doing. He's sending Jesus to save these wretched, stupid people from their sins. It's incredible, isn't it? I don't know if angels go down to the pub to have a chat and like talk, but as they're looking at what's going on, they announce it to the shepherds, to Joseph. It's like the angels are excited to see what this amazing, gracious, kind God is doing in his broken world. He's got to forgive them. <laughs> he's actually, he's, you never, he's going to forgive them. What, what, what's going to happen next? What a God. What an amazing God. The angels and their excitement. I think we'll miss something if we only see forgiveness in this verse, though. When it says that he will save his people from their sins, I think very often, you're Christian believers, you, you read that verse and you think, yeah, forgiveness, yeah, I know that, yeah, 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 forgiveness. That's not all that's entailed in this, you know. He will save his people from their sins is much more than forgiveness. Christ saves from both the penalty of sin, but he saves also from the power of sin. Jesus Christ did not come into the world just to let people off. Jesus Christ came into the world to lift people up, to forgive and to empower. That is why the Christian life is so exciting, isn't it? It is not a hopeless fight. Christ has come to save us from our sins, the penalty of it and the power of it. What an amazing thing. No wonder the angels are excited. One writer says, Christ is not truly acknowledged as a saviour till on the one hand we learn to receive the free pardon of our sins and know that we are accounted righteous before God because we're free from guilt until on the other we ask from him the spirit of righteousness and holiness having no confidence whatsoever in our own works or power. Forgiveness and power. What a gospel. I wanted to talk about Emmanuel, God with us. You can have a little think about that at home for some homework. Let me conclude. Matthew is a great writer. He's shown us the biblical credentials of Jesus. The historical credentials of Jesus. He's shown us the unique virgin birth of Jesus foretold by prophets, announced by excited angels. He's shown us how an ordinary godly couple brought King Jesus into the world. But let me close by taking you back to Joseph, verse 24. Here's a little challenge. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him took Mary home as his wife. After all this anguish, when God spoke to him, just look at his reaction. When he got up, he did exactly what God told him to do. I love his straightforward obedience, the speed of it, the promptness of it. And the point I want to make to you is there's a cost to that, you know. Even in his later years, We've seen in the Gospels the hint of people being unsure about the birth of Jesus. Even though Joseph knows that he and Mary would be subject to all kinds of whispers and misunderstanding, he does exactly what God tells him to do right away. Here's a great example of how you and I should respond to God, isn't he? You know who Jesus is. You know his credentials. You know his identity. You know he is your saviour and the very presence of God to you. The question is, 
Will you take him as yours? Is there something that you're afraid of? What will people say? What will others think? Does what people think matter more to you than he does? That's Joseph, isn't it? What does it matter what others think? When God has told them what to do. Here's a challenge from Joseph's life. Are you messing? There is no worse way to live than to know who Jesus is and fail to follow him properly. Nowhere is following Jesus said to be easy. But when you do, you will have his forgiveness and grace and strength and help and power every single moment of every day. You don't need to get wasted when things go wrong because you have him and all of his glorious goodness. Could today be the day when you, like Joseph, stop hesitating and decide right now, whatever the cost, to commit your all to Jesus, the promised King.